0: All right, real quick, people, before we get into today's show, we've just released a new course, Periodization for Periods, all around how to train women around their monthly cycle, and we've got it on special. If you're interested, click the link in the show notes
1: you are now listening to the Fitness Education Online Podcast, the podcast where fitness professionals go to grow their fitness business. If you're in the fitness industry, you'll find tips and strategies from proven business experts. Now, let's start the show.
0: Hey guys, welcome to the Fitness Education Online Podcast, another episode here of Bro Science, as always, joined uh, by my brother, Craig. Thank you so much for, for being here again today.
1: Thank you very much, it's been a little while between episodes, there's been a little bit of stuff on the plate, I've um, gone off and had another child, I've uh, battled with some uh, health issues myself, had a sneaky bout of meningitis and then uh, eventually got myself back here, um, sleep deprived, so I've had a no a swig of Red Bull and a coffee and I'm ready to have an <laughs> awesome chat with an awesome guest.
0: Perfect, well yes, as always, uh, well not as always, but we've got a guest today um, which is always a special occasion. Um, And it is an awesome guest, another person who has written a few books and done a lot of great things. But I am going to throw it over to Craig for the intro.
1: Yeah, we're really lucky today to be um, joined by a guest of someone who who I met um, a few years ago during my career as an army doctor um, when he was an instructor. But his reputation actually preceded him many years before that. So um, he's a self-described average 70 kilo dickhead. Which is the uh, the name of his uh, I think first book I assume unless there's another one that's hiding in the uh, hiding in the uh, the, the childhood yeah maybe maybe he wrote some haikus or something before that um, but this is uh, a pleasure to have uh, Doctor Dan Pronk. he uh, initially I knew about uh, Dan because he was a um, a quite renowned doctor that had pursued uh, a military career by undertaking uh, SASR selection over in Perth. Um, he'd worked with the the, the special forces unit um, on the east coast at Two Commando. Went over worked in worked in Perth. Um, uh, many multiple deployments overseas and, and active duty. And there was always this rumor of this fabled fabled doctor walking around with a a fifty caliber sniper rifle on his back, doing all sorts of crazy war dog stuff. And um and and eventually. All the years later, I finally met him expecting a bit of a wanker, to be honest. And uh, as my instructor on, uh, on a, a management course, there was this uh, yeah average 70 kilo dickhead who took the piss out of himself and um, was great to have a beer with and, and shared many stories and, and had learned a lot from his time in his career and has made an effort to pass that on to, to future people uh, and has gone on to do things such as being the doctor on the SAS Australia TV series. Um, written another couple of books since then, including the Combat Doctor, which has just hit shelves um, yesterday from when we we're recording. I think it came out on the uh, 30th of August, uh, available on Audible, which uh, is just been locked and loaded in my in my playlist, otherwise uh, in, in stores as well. So without any further ado, uh, Dr. Dan Peronk, thank you very much for joining
2: us. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me, gentlemen. It's a uh, real privilege to be here. Thank you for that grandiose intro. Uh, sorry to disappoint when you you met me in in the person, and there was never a, a fifty cal sniper rifle strapped uh, to my back. Here, that, <laughs> that shit is heavy, and uh, i ain't I'm carrying that around. I'll leave that to the the snipers. God bless them. But great to be here. Thanks.
0: Now, I just want to start uh, today's conversation. which chatting a little bit about yourself and and your background. We, we chatted a little bit um, before we jumped on live today, and and I've gone, th- I've read. Uh, well, when I say read, I listened to to uh, the average uh, seventy kilo dickhead as well. Um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Like you mentioned that you you, you were doing triathlons and stuff, like and and had a pretty good crack at that, trying to get into, I believe, the Australian sort of triath uh, the triathlon team and. Tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey pre-military or pre-ARMY.
2: Yeah, sure. The, so I grew up in an Army family. Dad was an Army helicopter pilot. Uh, older brother, Ben, who subsequently went on and, and was ended up the commanding officer of the SAS regiment. He was very military-oriented from a school age. And I kind of went down a different path and I I found middle distance running as in my mid teens and running 1500 metres miles and started to show a bit of promise there, became very interested in the the triathlon side of things after that. So this is mid early to mid nineties, started doing triathlon. It was a pretty fledgling sport in Australia at that stage, Mm -hmm. showed a little bit of promise as a junior athlete and then out of school decided I'd, I'd give that a nudge. So I moved down the Gold Coast. And, and hooked up with this uh, training team down there under a bloke called Cole Stewart. He had a son, Miles Stewart, who had won a world title. And so I plugged in with this group and started training and racing with, with them. I picked up some uni. So I did a, a exercise science degree part-time over about five years. And it, it that sort of I, I became interested in the, the, the sort of human side of things. It was relevant to me, the physiology, the anatomy. We were doing a lot in exercise testing labs, which tied nicely into the triathlon. And and so that was me in my late teens through to about age 23 was doing the exercise science, trying to crack it as a professional triathlete. And the, the truth was, I just wasn't good enough, plain and simple. I was I was training with the, the best athletes in the world and I just was nowhere near their level and, and that became really clear when I was about 22 23 and so I started to to think hey this triathlon thing is not going to not go, I'm not going to be the athlete I want to be what's next and that was when I sat the medical school admission test uh, started pursuing the military as a career and those two came together and I, I shot off to med school on an army scholarship and and it kind of went from there
0: Okay, so kind of similar to, to Craig in, in you, you did your medicine whilst um, signed up to the army, essentially.
2: Yeah, exactly right. So I was, I was so signed my life away to the, the army to go and study. And so it was always I was going to be in the military side of things. Very early in my med schooling, I became aware of special operations through my brother who'd done selection, gone to SASR, mm-hmm. and, and that introduction to, to that world. But having my eyes open to that, uh, sort of, I, I set my sights on that from about 2001, actually, late 01. Uh, to the, I really wanted to head in that direction. It really took my fancy. Yeah, I mean, my memory as well of just touching on the triathlon side of things, for my memory,
0: Australia's been pretty good at that. When I was growing up, at least, we seemed to always have the world champions and we seemed to have the Olympic athlete, like the Olympic champions. Yeah. So I think we've always had...
1: Sydney Olympics, right? We've, yeah, we've, we've,
0: we've always had a pretty there, yeah. strong, yeah, like a pretty strong sort of triathlete um, sort of group of
2: um, athletes, I suppose, right? It was amazing. And I look back on that period and as a, a young bloke, you know, 18, 19 years old, uh, being able to fall in with this training squad down on the Gold Coast, that at times there'd be maybe 20, 25 athletes that had come to training, and 10 of them would be would be ranked in the top 20 in the world. You know, it was this really elite group most of which were aussies and then it would because it was so elite it would draw in international athletes particularly in their off season to come and train and race in australia's triathlon season so i was rubbing shoulders with with the the best triathletes in the world these people that were my heroes that i had the posters of you know these people on my walls i was was training with them and racing with them so yeah it was a fantastic period of time
1: let's take a quick break
2: Right now.
0: So, what I want to dive in here is, I suppose, you know, like, so you, you've sort of told us a little bit about the beginning there, getting into the army, going through med school, SAS. You, you mentioned your, your brother was was you know a commanding officer, I believe. I don't. You have to
1: ignore yeah, yeah, my you, you ignore
0: know, my lack correct. of uh, no, lack of. Uh... No, that was
1: correct. You're on it,
0: <laughs> but. How many people who've gone through medicine have gone in and passed selection the way you have?
2: There, there's been a few scattered over the years. And so both uh, doctors and 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 other w- what's called support staff. So the non-operators, if you like, the non sort of uh, infantry slash shooter types who make up the bulk of the SAS regiment, there, there's been a, a decent number that have gone through and, and, and past selection over the years, it's they kind of have changed their stance on that more recently. And I, I, as I understand it, the door has been shut to that opportunity. But but I certainly wasn't the first to pursue that, and 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 internationally as well in things like the British SAS and and some of the US special operations. There's some great precedent for doctors yeah. doing these courses. One so of the things I was it was pretty, uh, much, uh, it was pretty
1: was, much day one as we as we came in and they did the tour of what the options were as a new army doctor and the special forces guys came around and toured and they said in no uncertain terms, we want doctors. We want doctors who focus on doctoring. Um, if you want to do um, selection, you finish your return of service uh, as a doctor and then you can follow your dreams after that. But we've paid you to be a doctor. Yeah. So um, yeah, they were uh, not open to that idea. And that's the mm. only reason I didn't do it really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah. but on that, like the, the other thing to that is, you
0: know, I always take the piss out of Craig a little bit in this talking about doctors and going like a lot of doctors aren't necessarily pictures of health themselves of physical, you know, like physical attributes. So I think that's also me.
1: he's talking about <laughs> other than me Yeah, he's talking about our other brother who's a doctor, yeah, that me. other guy, but it's, yeah, it's, so
0: that's why it's also interesting because usually, um, you know, in, in our experience or my experience, most of the doctors that I'm familiar with, aren't, um, aren't necessarily sporting or active, or have that, um, have that drive.
2: Yeah, no, agreed. And I think it's a lot like oftentimes the mechanic who spends their time fixing other people's car often drives the crappiest car themselves. And yeah, your doctor will tell you something and then you'll catch him out in the back having a smoke in, in between patients. But, um, yeah, no, look, I agree, but, but certainly there, there are some, and you will have come across both, of you will have come a- across them. There's, there's some great examples of these uh, amazing doctors that I know a few that mix, you know, Ironman Triathlon with their doctoring or, or these ultra endurance races. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a, like any occupation, I guess you're going to get the full spectrum.
1: There's a few like me and Dan that are just amazing at everything we try. Like well, a couple of yeah, yeah. There's a couple of diamonds a, yeah, in the rough.
2: And, and humble as well, Craig. Oh, yeah, humility, yeah,
1: I mean, humility is, the yeah,
2: it is yeah, the. yeah, I know it's 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 incredible, but uh, it, we're the exception. I do yeah, I do acknowledge that.
1: One little anecdote um, that I had heard about as you were preparing for selection, I believe, when you were based in Darwin. I think you started up in Darwin. Um, Rumor had it on an activity you went off on a a long pack march and potentially came back with a snake, whether alive or dead, and then went on to produce a uh, snakeskin wallet out of a, uh, a suture kit. Is there any truth to this story?
2: Yeah, yeah, there's partial truth to that. I didn't know where you were going for, for a second there.
1: Oh, there's probably a few different stories. Yeah. <laughs> and, and,
2: uh, there was a few different went off on a pack march and came back with X stories, but but this is one of the more appropriate ones to, to talk about. Yeah, so that was that was Mount Bundy. And I'd I'd gone off and and I was just doing some training in the lead up to selection and and found a a mostly dead brown snake on the road. And and so it was not, you know, wasn't sort of man versus animal type thing i was putting this thing out of its misery and and grabbed it skinned it dried the skin out cured it and then uh, i did stitch together a what ended up being a holster cover so i got this this nice sort of piece of uh, brown snake skin and I, i used contact adhesive to stick it to a pistol cover Uh, the pistol holster i should say and and i took that thing to my my first tour of afghanistan and yanks being yanks you know i think they have this this misconception of of animals in australia and everything's trying to kill you you know this hostile environment where the snakes are trying to kill you the spiders sharks are in every waterway and and so drop bears yeah drop bears exactly right so 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 the americans were quite taken by this brown snake uh, you know, pistol cover, and 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 I ended up trading that. Well, giving it to a um, a DEA agent, actually, a bloke who who I became quite good mates with, who, who actually got got shot right next to me as it was on on one of our jobs. He, he took around and thankfully and did really well out of it. We piled him onto a helicopter, treated him. So I'd I'd had a lot to do with this guy, and and uh, he got shot through the ass. So I was spending a lot of time looking at his uh, his ass, and that that'll bond that'll bond men uh, over a period of time, and say. I thought it fitting to gift that to him so yes there is there is truth to that uh that rumor
0: so let, tell us a little bit about um you know just just briefly i suppose a little bit what you can about your military career you know like so sas um soldier like what is the sas and and what did that mean for you in in regards to you know your role yeah
2: so the the SAS is part of Australian Special Operations Command, so which is, the, as the name suggests, it's a, a series of units that does uh, mission profiles that are slightly outside the spectrum of, of regular Army. Uh, the, so, the, as I said, when, when I was at med school, I got this insight into what that world looked like through my brother for me at that time it's I'd kind of let go of this triathlon dream and and there was this void that that just wasn't quite being filled this physical this this I guess as a young bloke probably a desire to try and prove myself and and so I was doing my med school which was great academically but had this desire to do something physically that that I felt was challenging and of significance so when off did uh, did selection in 2008. So I'd gone into the army, I'd done my first year as a junior doc in the army and done all my all my courses to become deployable as a doctor. So there's a suite of courses, takes about a year to do, and then you're deployable. And then first chance I got, went and did this selection course. And, and so it was, it was at that time when uh, we were at pretty, in pretty high rotation to Afghanistan. And so as it transpired, I ended up serving with both the 2nd Commando Regiment, being the East Coast uh, Special Operations Unit, and, and then the West Coast the Special Air Service Regiment. Had the, the privilege of serving with both over five years, getting off to Afghanistan on, on four occasions uh, during that time. And so the, the role was was as, as the doctor for those units. So you, you'd look after the blokes on a and ladies and, and blokes on a, a day-to-day basis, general practice type stuff, the more routine doctor stuff. The you would have a role training the medics in tactical medicine. Well initially it was the medics training me in tactical medicine. And, and then uh, as I, I got proficient in the skills and got a bit more experienced, you could have, have the opportunity to pass that on. And then when we were deployed, it was, once again, looking after the task group on a day-to-day basis, but then going outside the wire, so out on missions to try and uh, do, do the best you can for people if they got shot or blown up uh, on on jobs. Yeah, your standard occupational hazards. Well, yeah, I mean, it was in that role, and it, it was odd, and it, looking back now, it's and to say it in these sort of contexts, it seems really, really quite <laughs> unusual, but, but there was really nothing seemingly abnormal about it at the time we were we were so well prepared so well trained everything led up to this uh, that that it really didn't seem unusual and then the as it was uh, you know not just with me but with the whole task group pretty much you you got so much exposure to these combat environments that it was very normalized Mm -hmm. Uh, you were very desensitized they weren't Seemingly too high stress uh, at the time, but yeah, it's only now I look back and I think, geez, that was that was a weird thing to do for five years.
0: Yeah, I mean, the only thing I can sort of relate that to is stories where I hear, you know, people who like MMA fighters or, or rugby league athletes who once they've retired and they go into say commentary, and then they look at it and they go like, man, I can't believe I did this. Like, <laughs> like I never thought it was crazy until now. I'm sitting here watching it, and I go, man, this is this is pretty crazy.
2: <laughs> look, and it's there's, there are it's identical it's an identical thing this desensitization to these environments that happens over time and and to to me looking at a MMA fighter going into the cage or watching young uh, I have a bit to do with some professional footy teams and watching them run onto the field as these 21 year olds playing in front of you know, sixty thousand people. I think that is utterly remarkable. But but when I engage with these people, that they don't they don't see it, and they can't see it because they're within the bubble. But like you say, often it's not until retrospectively you look back and think, wow, that that was actually was a pretty big uh, big deal.
1: It's probably a really interesting point because I guess um, uh, having met you five odd years ago, it seems like your your growth and development and what you've done with your life took a big. A big leap once you finish that military time i guess um you know talking talking similar to to the fighters and and the footy players and all that sort of stuff if you've if you if you target fixated and there's there's one thing you want to do once that's done there's a lot of adjustment and i know um that that probably led you to to writing your, your first book when when did the the original average 70 kilo dickhead what part of your life did you write that
2: that was a couple of years out of the military. So I reckon that was probably about 2016. Uh, yeah.
1: Yeah. So it's really interesting. So having listened to that one, there's a, there's a, there's a definite, um, it, it seemed like a way for you just to self-reflect and process things. And and from there, you've gone on to work with your, your brother and your good friend to write The Resilience Shield, which came out last year, which is a, a, a as Travis has just um, finished uh, listening to it as well. And he was really impressed because, we often dive into little aspects of these things. We've had a sleep professional on, you know, we've had a nutritionist on, we've had a few different sections and, and Travis was really impressed by how holistic mm. that approach was. Um, and then I guess the the next thing, which we'll probably get onto is, is, you know, you've just, you've just written uh, another book, which I think um, I've, I've yet to listen to it uh, in totality on account of it was only released yesterday. And, um, but, uh, you know, that seems to be diving a lot more into the combat experience and, and probably going back through and processing some of those things. So I guess the, the overarching sense is it's not only those experiences, it's the ability to reflect, learn and grow and move forward. Because, you know, you, you've been very frank about when, when you sort of stepped away from the military, all of a sudden you had a whole bunch of stuff to learn how to do. You know, you have to learn how to be a civilian, you had to learn how to be a dad, you had to learn how to do all sorts of things. Let's take a quick break.
2: Yeah, you're exactly right. And the... You've, you've captured that and the, the sequence of it and the, the motivations behind it perfectly there in that there was all this stuff going on, but while I was within that bubble, it was hard to, there was no reference point. It seemed normal and there was no reference point. Uh, and then when I got out and sort of had this adjustment, this transition, this loss of identity, loss of purpose, loss of resilience, all these factors that were bolstering, not just me, but everyone when you're within a group like the military, uh, that was all sort of stripped away i i I was removed well i I don't. i wasn't removed i removed myself i discharged voluntarily but but i I moved away from my tribe these people that understood me that got me who had we had shared experiences and uncoupling from that really sort of destabilized me and i I know a lot of veterans pulled pulled that uh, thread yeah it really did and and it was this this loss of resilience is what it was and and i hadn't Ever thought that I really needed to revisit some of the events that had happened in Afghanistan, some of these critical incidents, I I didn't feel that I was affected by them, and then all of a sudden they caught up with me And, and so the, when I started to try and unravel all of that make sense of things and and that was the first time i had any social media accounts because i didn't have any when i was within the the military and so i started hopping on social media and and started to share a little bit of this stuff and it became clear that that i wasn't the only one you know going through these these sort of transitions, and it wasn't just military. This was police. This was ambulance officers. This was first responders. This was anyone in high stress environments. Which, let's face it, sports we- men and women. That's though. exactly cool. what
0: I was going to say. It sounds cool. sounds so similar to these stories that you hear from from anyone who who has the, such a focus on race. on yeah. on a short, but like a, a career that's not like a lifelong career. Like you you can't play professional sport forever. And, it, but it's what you dedicate so much time to. And then all of a sudden you're, you're 33 and it's gone, you know, and you've got to figure out like you've still got most of your you're, life. You're, still. you're
1: 15 to 20 years behind all your colleagues because they've been, you know, starting from scratch and yeah
2: exactly right you're exactly right and the other trap is that your adult identity a lot of the time with militaries police with professional sport you transition into adulthood in that environment so i I look at these young footy i use footy players as an example but insert you know pro sport uh, here the their only adult identity is as a professional athlete or if you go Mm. into the military if you go into paramedicine if you go into policing it's often at that late teens early 20s stage where you're developing your adult identity within a certain environment so the only person you know yourself as as an adult is that that role and then when you step out of that that's a big transition and it's you can get a really lost in that and and I, I certainly did and and so when I started to make sense of trying to make sense of things myself and look at what was happening through a a medical and a psychological lens, starting to look a bit at the literature so that I could basically work out what was happening with me, codify it, and then try and find a roadmap to a bit of a better place for me as a civilian. Uh, I started to blog a little bit, a little bit of social media, started to get a bit of feedback, other people saying, yeah, I had this. And I noticed this and hey that's a good point there have you thought about this and and so that fueled this desire to to try and reach out and and share some of my experiences with the hope that it might just help others maybe in the same space and so a a self-published average 70 kilo dickhead fully expecting it'd sell 20 30 copies or whatever else but just to to do go through that process and release it and it it um it 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 actually had this surprise (laughs) so i I was as surprised as anyone more surprised than anyone but it it got a real cult following and and i I think with you know i might have sold somewhere near twenty thousand copies now but it it was a really great tool to engage with people you know it was it, it seemed to resonate with the people that i was hoping to to reach and and then as as it went along and I started to look at what, what is resilience? What were the stressors? What was bolstering all of us in the military came together with Ben and Tim Curtis and that led to the Resilient Shields project, which was a bit more scientific. You know, I mean, that was that was looking at really putting some academic rigor around resilience. And then the the combat doctor, I'd started bits and pieces of that over, you know, over a decade ago, writing that. And it just in the last couple of years seemed like the right time, being eight years out of the military, being about 11 years uh, past the the key critical incidents that 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 book centred around, having that reflective piece that would then capture growing up, getting into the military, uh, getting into special operations, going to war with with the special operations, having these events, coming out the other end, and then and then kind of reintegrating into civilian society. It seemed like a good time to tie that one in a in a knot and put it out there.
1: I think it'd be um, a good point to probably look and dive in a little bit to the Resilience Shield, and I guess provide a little bit of a summary to our listeners about what we can find in there because a lot of the key messages in there reflect what we try to do here um on uh, on the show um i guess you know and one of the great really relatable things from the average 70 kilo dickhead is that turning point um when you ruin the paint job of your lamborghini and that's when you really realize that maybe maybe things aren't okay have you found a lot of other people have been able to relate with that particular turning point <laughs> Would you like to elaborate yeah, I've, on I've, that? Or
2: I've come across dozens that have have been dumb enough to try and respray a relatively expensive Italian sports car without necessarily having the competence to approach such a task. So yeah, that was uniquely stupid thing that that I did. And thanks for bringing could that. You share up. the
1: little. Could you share the little story for our listeners? Because uh, a- it'll be a good little <laughs> clip to put on uh, the Instagram reels to get people to listen. <laughs>
2: So the story behind that, I'm lucky enough to own a, a, an old vintage Lamborghini, and I'd come back from a tour of Afghanistan, my second, and in which we'd we'd lost three task group members. Three of our guys had been killed. I'd been in the field for all three, responded to them, couldn't couldn't uh, do anything for any of them, sadly, and and so I was pretty wound up. I was pr- I was pretty fried at the end of this trip came home and had six weeks of leave and this lamborghini was red the paintwork was quite okay but for whatever reason i decided it needed to be painted black so a complete color change i'd spray painted a couple of cars in the past so you know just to throw that out there and had had varying success but i felt confident enough to approach this thing and so I spent my full 6 6 weeks of leave which my wife of course was stoked about I've just come home from 5 months overseas and I spent 6 weeks just in the garage tearing this car apart respraying inside and out of every panel making everything that was red black get the paint back on and get all the panels back on, get it painted and it's looking okay. The paint job came up pretty well. And then last safe moment, I decide I'm going to put some clear paint over the top to really bring out the the depth in the paint. Clear coats interact with the colour and it all bubbles. The whole thing looked like a bloody chiquito bar and uh i didn't have any time left so i just it looked had to... like a
0: poorly laminated um textbook high school textbook yeah
2: here. exactly right it's like your iphone with the little bubbles in it that you <laughs> all over this thing it just ruined it completely but no time to do anything about it just had to whack it back together and drive it back to work and and my medics thought that was hilarious which it is which it is. It's been a, a, a constant source of, uh, of, of sort of humour and piss-taking. Is the, it still a bubble wrap black? No, I resprayed it. So just uh, <laughs> last year, I uh, carved out some time and, and, and stripped it all back, resprayed it, and thankfully had a win this time. So it's so, black so or fluoro green? What was the, no, black. the color? black. Black, yeah. So yep.
1: it, it was bubble wrap for about nine years. Is that... Or yeah,
2: it, yeah it was it was getting around in that horrid state for for about <laughs> the best part of a decade yeah so but but at the time and i, I used that anecdote in average 70 kilo decade, decade that i was really bothered by that you know it really uh sort of irked me and and then through processing the the events in afghanistan and you know looking at these these um key critical incidents and realizing the magnitude of them i, I started to get really recalibrated and thinking you know what that that's what a bad day looks like having having one of your mates die in the field and and not being able to to prevent that that's a bad day and if if i who am i to be you know complaining about the paint on this vintage lamb again it just seemed ridiculous you know and all of a sudden i could view this mm. previously what i was was pretty worked up about I could view it as minutia which is what it is you know I'm lucky enough to have the live in the first world country and own this car This is remarkable who cares what the paint looks like so it was a, it was a great recalibration the
1: irony of uh so we the constant joke about special forces is whenever they get something new it's like does it come in black <laughs> um, so you really just you're really just uh, getting into that full persona.
2: Do they still want black? I, I, I lost track of this because I think I think it was the old sort of, you know, CT black, absolutely. And it's then, then it might have gone through multicam and then everyone got multicam. So it was Coyote Brown. Maybe we have gone back to to black. I'm not sure. Maybe that was the, the sub, subliminal drive to, to paint my car black. I don't know.
0: Before before we dive into like some more about the Resilient Shield, I suppose it's this- Relates. I'd love to chat just a little bit about the actual selection process and the sorts of people who end up passing it. Um, because, as you mentioned yourself, like I think anyone here who thinks special forces, they think you know, six foot four, one hundred and ten kilos, ultra athlete, all of that sort of stuff. I assume average seventy kilo dickhead was based on your actual weight. Um, I'm assuming you were in and around those seventy in those 70 kilo mark, like tell us a little bit about those people who I suppose have that resilience to get through. I I know, is it what, is it a two week, six week? What's the,
2: the the SAS course in Australia is a three week course. So it's around the 21 day mark. The commandos have got a slightly longer uh, training and selection course, but yeah, SAS is about three weeks.
0: And so tell us a little bit about, yeah, the, the people who end up making it to the end of that. You know, I, I know the answer, but I'm gonna say, I assume it's I assume it's the super athletes that always make it to the end.
2: And you, you're drawn to them, and you're exactly right. I think the the, the misconception is that a special operations soldier or a, a police tactical operator. I'm lucky enough to have a bit to do with police tactical groups and and their selection courses. And and I think the, the the public perception is that they are the six and a half foot super soldier that's you know 100 130 kilos of muscle. But the the interesting, and I, I talked to this in average 70 kilo dickhead. And I, I love the the Mark Twain quote. He says that that it's it's not the size of the dog in the fight it's the size of the fight in the dog and and i think that that is just so relevant to the, the special unit selection process the it's it's really Uh, people often will be going into it thinking it's a physical game and it is to some extent, you need to be able to hit the minimum requirements, but, but they are quite achievable. It's not, you know, you don't need to be an Olympic athlete to be able to pass the things like the 2.4 K run time or the 3.2 K webbing run or the 20 K pack March. These are achievable uh, time uh, sort of uh, physical activities. It's the psychological resilience. It's whether you've got that, that that psychological grit to be faced with near constant failure, which is what these selection courses often are, these impossible tasks, you're really time-limited, you you can't get to the end of it, you fail, you have to reset, you have to go again, you're sleep-deprived, you're food-deprived. You know, depending on how they run the course, there's varying degrees of of feedback from the the directional staff, either nothing, just silent running, which really unsettles people, uh, through to... This constant barrage of, of telling you how you're failing the whole time. Well, and... I'm just
0: I'm laughing because on I think it's on the resilience show where there's the the chicken the chicken in the pack and and the chicken's going crazy and and every time yeah, the chicken God, that's,
2: that's right. Yeah. That was on my brother Ben's selection course. And, and, but, but these are the the wonderful things that these units dream up to. And it's clearly, you you can't keep the chicken quiet. And every time the chicken balked in that instance, they'd have to go back down the bottom of the Hill. And, and it's, it's these little things that can really upset people. And, and so it's that, it's that psychological, greed, determination, resilience, and and often it comes from the the the, the smaller, more like less physically sort of uh, you know typical what we might think of a special unit bloke or or girl to look like, and and I think I'm I'm convinced that links to 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 the mindset and particularly the difference between a growth and a fixed mindset. So. I reckon that you, these these super soldier types or super cop types that have been have got through life, they're physically impressive they they do well, they excel, they're allowed to develop this ego in the the military or the police and and they're the top dog at their unit or their section or whatever it may be. and then when they turn up to selection and they're used to succeeding, they're used to to winning, and all of a sudden they're not. I, I think that's quite confrontational for these fixed mindset types who need to need to win and their identity is as a winner who who you know and so you'll see these people fall by the wayside and then you've got this growth mindset group that i considered myself to be who I'm, i'm 175 centimeters and shrinking as my spinal discs continue to rupture but but i was i was 73 kilos i'd bulked up to 73 for selection i finished the course 58 kilos uh but I, I went into that knowing I wasn't going to be able to compete with these other blokes. Uh, there was no there was no females on the course that I did, but but these other blokes, either physically, I was not going to be able to ever be the, the first person across the line for anything, or from a, a military perspective. You know, I'd been in the army uh, in uniform all of 18 months. I had no skills. I was a doctor, I'd, you know, just the bare basics. And so I went in with that mindset of. I'm going to give this thing my best shot. I'm never going to be at the front of the pack, but, but by God, I, I'm not going to sign myself off this thing and and found myself standing at the end. And it's often that mindset, I think, that's more successful than the the big super soldiers.
1: It's all about the previous exposure to failure, right? It's about all these, yeah. these, you know, superstars who, who've been able to, you know, whilst their way into the first footy team they have been able to, Achieve this. They've been uh, representing at state. They've been doing all, all this sort of stuff, which is you know awesome for them. But it's being out, What do you do when you don't? When you don't make that? What are you going to do when that doesn't come easily? What are you going to do when you know you've got to walk through this this um, this challenging door? And, and I and find it, that I, I found that uh, for me it was um, playing rugby league for a selective high school as the uh, the only person who'd uh, played on the weekend that really built my resilience getting flogged week uh, in week out. <laughs>
2: Oh, there's something to be said for it. Yeah, absolutely. And Carol Dweck is, I'm sure you gents were, yeah, I can see the nods, but Carol Dweck has done a lot of stuff around mindset and fixed and growth mindset and and has indeed written a fantastic book mm. called Mindset that, that scratches the surface on the, well, it takes a deep dive more than scratches it. But, you know, that's that's that growth mindset piece. And I think, and, and it is also the resilience piece and the grit piece, which are all interwoven. And I think that what what you Talking to there, Craig is that I think there's a healthy dose of having your ass handed to you over the years can well it can do one of two things it can either really build that resilience or or it can you know if it's Mm. a bit too much at key developmental stages it can break a a person down sadly but 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 a healthy dose the right stress at the right time in key developmental stages really helps build that resilience
0: Mm. and and Carol Dweck is uh, like that's that's like a primary school I mean as I said I've done an education degree and it's like. Education quintessential textbook uh, that one. Um, one thing there that I want to touch on, just uh, just still on that selection thing. I don't know how much you, whether you're allowed to talk about it, whether you're not allowed to talk about it. Uh, is the reality series the SAS one? What like what things do you see in the people who do really well in that? Because let's let's remove the because they're not military people, right? So some of them are athletes, some of them are models, some of them are actors. What's what are some of the traits that these guys? Is it the same sort of traits as what the the military people that succeed? Like, what are you seeing the people who do well in that show?
2: And can the you exact... pick it? Can you pick
1: it from the start? Is the question?
2: Like no, the question. no, you can't pick it from the start. But it is the exact same traits to to talk to your question, Travis. and I was really impressed by that show. I didn't know what to expect when I went off and and did the 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 first engagement with them, but it ended up doing. Uh, four seasons in the end in support of that or was it three no four can't remember anyway multiple Uh, and it was the same thing over and over and and they they properly create a stressful environment I mean it is it is akin to a special unit selection course those people are within that stress bubble and I think you could make a strong argument that it is as intensive and taxing and demanding on those people as the real Uh, military course is for a proper recruit just by the virtue of the fact that these are not soldiers. These Mm -hmm. are not career soldiers. These are people coming in from different backgrounds to have this experience and it is the proper experience. And, and it's the 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 context
1: in the military sense. It's a six to 18 to 24, 36 month preparation for a selection course. So that's the big difference is, you know, while obviously the level that a, a true selection course will be a lot higher, there's a, there's a long, there's a long road and a long journey to get there. I assume there's a a much more compressed preparation for the show.
2: Yeah, exactly right. And the other piece is there's something at the other end of it. So I mean, this is a this if you're successful, you have a career in a in a special unit after that, all going well, and you get these uh, civilian off off the coming in because they want to test themselves. There's and sometimes it was even at the risk of their own professional careers. Like you Mm. look at a a, one particularly impressive young lady, Melissa Wu. Slash yeah. just won gold at the commonwealth games so she's 155 centimeters 53 kilos maybe this this little pocket rocket and i, I remember looking at her fall and she's one of many be, before the the pre-screening medicals all that stuff and just thinking whoa man this uh this is a big ask for still her.
0: actively competing in mm. in,
2: in her yeah. sport so risking her career potentially to come and and test herself and and oh my goodness she was unbelievable but the it's it was the same thing as the the real course they all line up at the start and you sort of think wow they look like they should go well don't know about them and and then as you go along as everyone starts to get ground down they get tired they get their true colors come out and you see those that that hit the point same in the real course where the point you get to is one where you can see this person will quite literally die before they remove themselves Mm. from this and Yana Pittman's another beautiful example of this it was towards the end it's like holy dooly she she was absolutely ragged but she was never going to quit and Mm. so you know she she got bounced just on the last activity which was a real shame to see I wanted her to be there at Mm. the end but But uh, wow, it was, she was never going to quit. She needed to be basically removed (laughs) for for, for fear of she would push herself to the point of doing real harm because she's so psychologically strong.
1: Let's take a quick break.
0: Hey, Bar & Grill fans, it's Jim with Madhouse Bar Talk, where me and my co-hosts sit around and talk about the things going on around Madhouse Bar & Grill in Elyria, Ohio. The whole conversation is unscripted, uncensored, and unedited. Anywhere where you stream podcasts, just remember Madhouse Bar Talks, baby.
1: I think um, it was only the the first season that um, one of our colleagues, Sam Hay, looked after and I think you've you've looked after the subsequent. Who were the obviously you've mentioned Yana and and, um, Melissa Wu? Any other standouts? I know from that first season, both myself and Travis were quite amazed by you know Merrick Watts. I think was in the very Mm. first season that Sam looked after. Um, That was a that was a surprise. And and you know when you look at it, you look at you go, oh these guys that have have faced some struggles, and he sort of you know came out and said that he'd faced some struggles, and this was a real opportunity to test themselves. And and I guess this will flow quite well into when we talk about the resilience shield stuff um anyone else that really really surprised you or any sort of you know he's a comedian so you've, you've mentioned two elite athletes are there any left field ones that aren't uh, that that shouldn't shouldn't have a right to be there shouldn't have a right to be there at the end who um who, who surprised you
2: look yeah certainly uh rihanna crean from the the she's a a TV presenter in motorsport mm. and, and one of these ones to to look at at the start you think wow let's let's see how this is going to go she d- did exceptionally well uh another and I, I fear this one was slightly lost among the the celebrity series but on the back of of one of the yeah. seasons they did a, a non celeb uh
1: hell week yeah the
2: hell week one and there was a bloke in in that called james fenwick who was is a professional hip-hop dancer hell of a nice Mm, guy i think i saw that one but but just tough as nails and you know there was a a few in that course but but he he was particularly impressive he's Mm. a similar sort of stature to me maybe uh even a little little bit shorter from memory so not not one of the big super soldiers but just so impressive from a resilience perspective. And also his attitude was just incredible. You know, he was he was doing what needed to be done. He was looking out for those around him. And, and I remember looking at, at this guy thinking, this, this is remarkable. I mean, this is a, a professional dancer with no military background. Mm. And I, I remember looking at him thinking that you could probably slot that bloke straight into a military yeah, wow. special unit and, and he'd he'd do fine. He just, he had it, you know? And there was a few of them like that. It was great mm. to see.
0: I think for me watching them, there was two that stood out for me. Uh, one was Scud because he looked like he had no knees oh, yeah. and he oh, like, you're yeah. just like, this guy's going to quit. And he, because he just, he looked like he could barely walk up or down stairs. Like he, he looked like he was just in immense pain constantly. Mm-hmm. And then the other ones were, were some of like the supermodel chicks, the like They're some of the models, nice. um, they yeah, just had amazing resilience. I thought, like a lot of those ones, and it was—they're the ones that sort of stood out to me watching. Uh, that weren't—I mean, I know Scud was an athlete, you know, but they're the sort of ones that stood out to me beyond, um, you know, the, the professional sports they, people. not in the
1: pe- He wasn't in the peak of his physical condition.
0: No, I mean, out. I mean, he retired he, with terrible knees. knees, and you know, yeah. like
2: yeah. Yeah, no, there, and there was a few like that. Kerry Pothast is another example. These these athletes who who had had you know been been professionals in their day and and world world beaters, you know, the Olympic gold medalist, obviously Kerry Pothast and and Philippus uh, on the centre stage. But but we're carrying these injuries and exacerbating these injuries on this course as well. And and once again, just seeing this no
1: real written. gain other than self mm. uh yeah. hey,
2: and and mark philipus is uh, just a beautiful human being really mm. lovely lovely bloke and it, it was interesting to you know watch that if you saw that he he had to fight pete murray there in the the punch up and and in among it all pete dislocated his elbow and and just seeing this sort of side of him and he was really apologetic and he, he was really Sort of, uh, which is so- really
0: interesting. If you saw his career, it's you know flashy cars. You know, yeah. it, it's not what you would picture. You know, based on the career of tennis that he had, where it was, you know, like I suppose if you put it into today's context, Nick curios
2: like, yeah, yeah. you know, not
1: everyone who has flashy cars is a wanker, Travis. Some of, them, <laughs> some of them just have a passion for fine Italian automobiles.
2: But he, um, and and he. He, he was very open about that. I had the chance to have a lot of great chats with him and I've stayed in touch with him, which is a real privilege. And, and he's very sort of reflective and, and on that period of time. And he acknowledges, hey, you know, I was an 18, 19 year old kid, Getting millions of dollars and, and acknowledges how how wasteful it was throwing mm. all this money at these cars. I just wanted to hear the stories about the cars, you know. There's incredibly owned every single thing that I, I would love to have a drive in. But <laughs> but he he's able to have a laugh about it and say, hey, you know, it was it was craziness and, and 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 view it in that in that perspective. And and it makes sense, you know, if you start throwing millions of dollars at an 18-year-old and put, put them in that light which one of us wouldn't behave mm. in that manner. I mean, I think it's a pretty rare person who wouldn't behave in that manner, but he's, he's certainly uh, done a lot of growing up, a lot of reflecting and, mm. and just a magic human being.
1: It's really um, interesting. It's, uh, there's a few little key points here that we'll touch on. Um, one thing that you, obviously I'm, I'm still a current serving military doctor um, in terms of looking at things that we have uh, in the military now. So you've been, you've been out for, for eight years Um, I myself was lucky enough to participate in uh, a program called the um, uh, Arts for uh, Recovery, Resilience, Training and Skills. I don't know if you've heard of the the arts program hosted down in Canberra. It's a program that um, uh, it invites both, uh, you know, veterans, DVA, current being ADF, and as well as um, uh, emergency services as well to be involved. Uh, It's a month down in Canberra where they use um, uh, art skills. So, Um, visual arts creative writing and music skills they used to do a drama thing but that became a bit too uh, people were getting a bit too
2: uh, active
1: getting a bit too far in character so they dropped that one for fear of um, conflict but uh, I was lucky enough to actually go down there as a participant and you know spend four weeks um, learning a bit of music learn a bit of piano played a bit of drums I can see some drums in the background there Um, and uh, ironically enough at the final performance I actually sung a Pete Murray song um, in front of, and I, I got to sing that to the um, the, the, the governor general and his wife. Um, I made her cry, hopefully not because of um, the, the, pitch. the <laughs> Yeah, hopefully not because I was out of tune. Um, so, yeah, so it's a small world. So I had that little connection with uh, with Pete Murray. His music allowed me to, to do that. So interesting that, you know, that stuff is happening in the military to sort of um, give us a, a better way of, uh, of, of dealing with things. Mm through more productive ways, which, you know, we'll touch on in the Resilience Shield. And then the other funny thing is when I played for um, the Army Thunder Rugby League team, so I actually went and um, played a game at the the Sergeant Matthew Locke uh, Memorial game up up at Bellinger near Coffs Harbour. Uh, the subsequent game uh, against the Air Force, I actually managed to dislocate my elbow as well. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a... Everything's, you know, six degrees of separation. Elbow dislocations and Pete Murray songs and... You know, it all it all comes around. <laughs> so, so getting into say the resilient shield, you've got now in the making. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, there's these different layers. I mean, I suppose we've I suppose, touched on that physical layer that you talk about. Um, what what is it about? As I said, what Craig mentioned early on, that one of the things that I found really good about this book is it's it has a very holistic approach, which which I wasn't expecting. You know, and and. And realistically for me, whenever I've thought about resilience, I always think about doing something that challenges you, something that's tough. Um, you know, it's kind of like in that growth mindset where if it's too hard, you, you like quit. If it's too easy, you get bored. I always think of that side of things, but you, you, you go into so many other different elements of social and, um, your professional and all this sort of stuff. Can you, do you mind just touching on what some of these other elements are?
2: Yeah, for sure. So the the that the genesis of that project, as we spoke of before, was I got out of the army and, and in effect fell in a bit of a heap and sort of started to look at this saying, well, you know, what's going on? What I was having these symptoms that were clearly post-traumatic stress and and I'd never been safer. I was home with my family more than ever. I was earning twice my income as a civilian doctor that I had been in the army. On paper, everything looked better, yet in practice, I, I was worse than ever. I was hypervigilant. I was anxious, I was on a hair trigger anger wise, I was having bad dreams, flashbacks, all this stuff. And, and so that kicked off this, what, what was so protective about being in the military? And what, what have I lost? What did I lost when I discharged that left me vulnerable to all this, this stuff catching up to me? And so I started to look at it all through a medical lens. So like, let, let's hit the literature. What is What does stress look like? What does post-traumatic stress look like? What does resilience look like? And more importantly, how can I rebuild resilience? How can I identify this stuff, codify it all, and then rebuild it? Because that's what I need to do. I've lost something in the, that I had in the military. How do I rebuild it as a civilian? And in among all of this, uh got, got engaged with my brother and Tim Curtis, and we came together to start looking at, at this, this, started to develop this model and, and started to realize that resilience was multifactorial. It wasn't just one thing it was dynamic it ebbed and flowed uh, throughout your life and and most importantly it was modifiable you could you could build resilience and so this was kind of this aha uh-huh, we're we're onto something here let's let's work out how we build resilience and 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 when we started to really scrub the literature look at our own experience look at what the science said it became clear that it fell into these layers. So that an innate layer, nature and nurture. There's there's some genetic and epigenetics to resilience, no question. Your mind layer. So your mindset, your, your mindfulness, your gratitude, optimism. You know, meditative practices. All of this sort of stuff definitely was a was a cornerstone to resilience. Body layer, sleep, diet, exercise, professional layer. So your virtuosity, purpose. Oh, sorry. Before that, your social layer. So your social support outside the workplace makes sense. If you've got good social support, more resilience. Uh, then professional layer, virtuosity, and purpose. And and then it was also clear that that resilience. Could be, could be built this thing called the adaptation layer. So you can build resilience against a stress you don't know is coming yet. So if you build up this other stuff deliberately, it makes you more confident to approach novel stressors. So these sort of you know, out of left field. And, and so we, we formulated this theoretical model and we realized it was more widely applicable than just army, you know, this this was for everyone. This is all of us. Uh, stress affects people in a pretty predictable fashion. Doesn't matter if that's combat operations or a busy accountant or a, a single parent, you know, you name it, stress and stress. The fundamentals of building resilience are exactly the same. And so we started to, to realize this was more widely applicable than just military. The other thing we wanted to do was, well, two things. We realized, what was missing from the literature was the ability to quantify resilience. So we wanted to put a number to it because then you can baseline it, you can do an intervention and you can assess it again and see if you've made an improvement. So we wanted to do that. And we wanted to prove our model. We didn't want to just say, hey, we were in the army once, do these five things and you'll be resilient. Wasn't wasn't good enough. And, and furthermore, we wanted to be able to individualize resilience interventions once again, to say, here's five things that everyone needs to do and you'll all be resilient, was seemed a bit sort of, uh, it didn't seem right to us. We, we acknowledged that different people are gonna have different mm. strengths and weaknesses. So anyway, very long story short, probably too late for that, sorry. But, <laughs> but we, we, we partnered up with the University of Western Australia. We got a federal government research grant. We put together a survey uh, through a, a, a PhD researcher. She did a PhD in resilience, helped us to put together a survey, got a whole bunch of survey responses. I think we're up to about 15, 20,000. And that allowed us to validate our model, refine our model and, and prove our model. So hmm. we through this survey, we and we can quantify resilience, you do the survey, it sits on resilienceshield.com, 42 questions gives you a resilience score, overall but also it gives you sub scores for your mind body social and professional and what that allows is you can see where you're strong see where you're not as strong and it allows you to focus your resilience interventions to the areas where you're not as strong to build your overall resilience shield and so we just published last month actually in a peer-reviewed um psychology journal the the Uh proof of the Resilience shield model so we're we're, which is actually something that probably out of the whole thing i'm I'm most proud of we've Mm. proven this we've put it out there we can we've got this validated empirical proof of the model and the survey so we we can we can quantify resilience and we can quantify the individual scores which gives us that that baseline to work from
1: i continue to be so impressed with um myself and um travis about this podcast because we've done such a good job of like nesting all these ideas one of the things that you've just mirrored that i always talk about is if there was one intervention if there was one solution if there was five things you could do to sort out resilience it would have been worked out already um so i believe in the sort of you know market economy that people will if there's a, a single fix it would have been fixed so when there's a million different things a bunch of different options it's because we need to start thinking about about tailoring stuff, and we had a recent discussion um, with uh, um, Travis's Man Crush um, regarding personalized medicine. It's probably worth having a listen, dang It was a great episode, and it's all about how, as you say, it's not just saying it's not just a you know five-step self-help book. It's saying this is the stuff: work out where you are, adjust, review, and improve. And it and it's so good because because we we talk about different parts of this, and I think we've probably maybe missed a few of the layers in, in some of the, the content that myself and Travis have provided. But the other awesome thing is the whole point of this, this podcast that me and Travis do is, is to sort fact from fiction and it's to take out the, the random, um, you know, bro science myths and BS. And, and there's, there's so much of that in the resilience area. I was, um, you know, in, in the army, in a medical unit. One of the things that they did to build resilience for our unit was to send a group of um, uh, medical people And medical support people to do the conduct after capture course and surprise surprise came back with a bunch of people who were significantly deteriorated from that a bunch of people actually ended up being medically downgraded and discharged following that that event and you and you just you just step back and reflect and go okay um so so maybe we need to actually look at some evidence and say what should we be doing because Dropping people in a very very stressful environment without any support, any preparation, is going to uh, over overdo that system, right? It's as you said as you said early on. People who face a lot of adversity, it either builds their resilience, yeah. or it you know brings it all crashing down. And and yeah. we really need you know there's a there's a big hole there. So the fact that you've now published evidence, you've got a you've got an entire book with all the layers um, looking at sorting you know. The fact from fiction around this, um, you know, it's great, and 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 again, we're very lucky to have you on the, have you on discussing. Like it's it's awesome, and I know you're probably gonna um, die a little on the inside from that little anecdote. No, the, uh, not at yeah. all.
2: I, and and the, I think the uh, geez, I I, I I pity the the poor commanding officer that made that decision because I could see that it would have been made in with the best of intentions. And and we talk in the Resilient Shield about the the Yerkes Dodson stress performance curve. And and I think we think of stress as being universally negative. Got to get rid of stress. We want no stress. Minimize it. But the reality is, we need a bit of stress to be. Optimise. We need stress to to perform at our optimal, to be primed for optimal performance, and it's all about the right amount of stress for that person at that particular time. and And to grow and to evolve and to build resilience, we need stress in our life. But I think where that one might have fallen down is if if you take a, an SAS operator or uh, someone who would traditionally do conduct after capture, they've been built up to a point where that is a that's a that's a hell of a course. A hell of a course terribly stressful but they've been built up to a point where that's going to be just probably pushing them somewhat past their optimal stress point but not exponentially so I mean it's stretching them and it's designed to do that to get a stress inoculation and a training effect heaven forbid they do find themselves captured but if you're taking army medical corps people who don't necessarily have that same degree of baseline stress inoculation and chuck them in there you're going to throw them straight into overwhelm and i'm not i'm not surprised that that broke people that's a, a horrible thing to do to a human
0: so i think you know on all of that i, I love like i said the different areas i love the fact that you had uh the different layers that you could focus on that it was improvable what you may need for resilience at 25 is different at 35 I loved all of that aspect. One of the ones that I suppose really surprised me, I don't know whether it's come from your post-military you know, military career or whether it was something that was done uh, with you guys, but one of the ones you spoke about very early on there was your like your mental space with meditation, with all of those things. And it's, it's not something that, and, and gratitude is in there, and it wasn't something that I was expecting early on in that book, to be honest. I was sort of expecting the book to be very meat-headed and uh, you know, like you know, my my idea of resilience is, hey, do something that challenges you and get better at it. And I usually will throw in there, go do jujitsu or something, you know. But that I, I found that really, that's what sort of got me into the book very early on because, like, oh wow, that's I wasn't expecting this.
1: You you thought it was just cram all that shit right down and just pretty much just keep it down yeah. there and let's not deal with it. Yeah. Poor Jack
2: Daniels on it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it pleases me to hear you say that, and and we were very aware that as three ex military blokes, particularly that that there would be that. That potential misconception that this would just be, hey, lift heavy things and stomp great distances and and cry into your beer type thing, man up. But but the evidence is overwhelming that the that the mind layer is the cornerstone. It is the most important part of building resilience. And and if you had to strip everything else away and just focus on one thing, that's it. Let the rest of it go and you will be able to build mental resilience. And there's some fantastic case studies there that, and there are exceptions to the rule. They're the Nelson Mandela's and of the world and, and James Bond Stockdale, who spent a bunch of time in a, a Vietnamese prison camp. These people that had everything else stripped away from them and they were just mentally strong and they stayed resilient despite you know, horrendous conditions, malnutrition, being beaten, being you know, no social contacts, no professional uh, satisfaction. Yet they stayed strong. And and the the mind layer piece is something that that I'm hugely passionate about now. And I think we miss, particularly in cultures like military, like policing, like professional sport, footy type male footy clubs, these hyper masculine type environments where. I fear that that meditation and mindfulness has been misconceived as, being, as, as making you passive, as if you lose some competitive edge or you'll become softer. And it couldn't be further from the truth. We know beyond question now that, that these techniques change the way your brain fires and they change the way your brain is structured over time. Uh, we know this because we can scan brains now. And there's a bunch of studies looking at meditators and non-meditators and show that the the brain changes it changes the structures change the and the area it changes most is your your stress response systems. So people who meditate and practice mindfulness they have smaller stress response systems. They have lower fight or flight response to an acute stimulus. They have lower chronic stress hormones like cortisol. It, it, this thing is actually I mean this is training for your brain. It's it's like gym work for your brain and it optimizes you as a warrior if you like even up to and including. Uh, people who might need to use force, uh, be that in the, in the cage as an MMA fighter, or be that on the street as a police officer, in the field as a, a military uh, person, this, this optimises you under high stress environments and, and we're missing it. And, you know, I think the, the thing that I tend to lead with when I'm engaging with police groups, military groups, or these groups where they might think, oh, geez, I'm not going to meditate it or make me passive. I might need to go out and rumble or potentially tase or shoot someone, is you reflect back on the samurai culture, these really mm-hmm. mindful sort of cultures. Shaolin monks is another good one. They're great examples where they mix mindfulness and meditative practice with the controlled use of absolute violence. And, you know, it's, it, it is, it's there. The link is there. There's a, a great case study that I use uh, Miyamoto Masashi, very famous Japanese swordsman book of five rings. Well done! Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's quite quite rare. People know that I'm, I'm well, not surprised, but very impressed, Travis. Yeah, Book of Five Rings. So here's a bloke who walked around feudal Japan. You know, used two swords, had a new technique that that just no one could beat him. Won his first sword fight and killed his first person age fifteen. I think he lost interest in killing people after about 30, 35, one sixty-five sword fights in his life. So I mean, here's a guy, the ultimate warrior, using uh, close quarters lethal force. Would spend half his day in meditation and then he'd go out and he'd kill someone in the armour, you know? And it was, it's, but but when you reflect on that, what this guy was doing was training his brain to get such control over his stress response to create so much space in that sword fight between stimulus and response that he was just miles ahead of anyone else. And, and so the the science has caught up. We know what Masashi was doing with his brain to his brain to get that advantage and this is so relevant to all of us across the board but particularly those that operate in in really high stress environments including those where you might need to use force either in combat sports or real time
1: it's really interesting because it it, it's one other thing that me and travis often talk about when we're looking at these sort of fitness you know, um, myths for what for one of a better term is a lot of their stuff from like the Eastern cultures, yeah. like they've known this for a long time. Yeah. Um, and it's just because it hasn't been validated and it hasn't been part of the, mm. the Western really analytical um, scientific post-enlightenment type of thing. It's taken some time for this to sort of catch up. And I guess the sort of, you know, a really good example, if you're not familiar with the five rings, there's the documentary Kung Fu Panda where it's not <laughs> until he, he centers his chi, is he able to to combat his foes? So I think there is definitely a balance of, of understanding the mind layer before you can unleash the inner warrior.
0: But I was going to say, even from the fitness field, is, is the yogis, you know, breathwork and yogis, are like, have been saying for years and, you know, hundreds of years about, oh, breathe like this, you have to breathe this way, you have to do this. It it changes your, your sympathetic, and your parasympathetic, and all of this stuff that I can't do justice. You know, I let smarter people talk about it. I can regurgitate some of it, but they've been talking about that for years. And then it's the science then catches up to it.
1: Yeah, who's the BJJ guys from who? Gracie? Yeah, the yeah. There's Gracie. a
0: there's a old documentary with um uh, on, uh, one of the Gracies, and, and he he, he the, was the, the breathing. Hot
1: with- Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton. He does the breathing activity exactly. Hulk in. Yeah. yeah,
0: there's a documentary that, that he has uh could have been called but just breath or breathe. Um,
2: kind of like Kung Fu Panda. Something like that. Exactly the same. Yeah. And and there's some great examples. I mean, the, the whole Wim Hof movement is another good example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he's uh, oh, he's uh, love love a bit of Wim. He's an absolute crazy person. We, uh, you we know, haven't basically. got
1: into that one. We'll have to work out. We haven't fact or fiction Wim Hof yet. That's uh, well, yeah.
2: And uh, I'm I'm right into my work, hot maybe. water immersion. I've got a, a an ice bath in my shed. I use it daily actually nowadays, and and love it. Have gotten right into it. Uh, but certainly that breathing piece as well. And, and once again, the science has caught up. We know that, that, that this is the real deal. You can, you can reverse that sympathetic drive. You can slow everything down. There's certainly in uh, elite soldiering, they teach breathing techniques before you, you make entry, entry, these sort of things to, to calm yourself down. Because when you go into full fight or flight, your body does a pretty predictable set of things, one of which is gives you tunnel vision. So you get this sort of visual narrowing. And often we'd be operating at night on night vision when your vision's already sort of narrowed by your, by your goggles and by your depth perception. You get even reduced visual fields. Your, your eardrums tighten. You get auditory exclusion so you can't hear as well. And you find motor skills start to go out the window a little bit. And that's all part of this, this fight or flight response. So when you're just about to make entry into a compound, you might be you know, likely going into combat. Your body's trying to render you blind, deaf, and incapable of operating (laughs) your weapons and communication (laughs) systems. And and you can drive all that back in the other direction by breathing techniques. And and we used to use box breathing, combat breathing Mm. is what they called it. But in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. And we know you can drive that uh, stress response back in the other direction.
0: Yeah, perfect. Well, I th- we're probably getting pretty close to our, we usually go for about an hour, we're probably getting pretty close to our time. We're probably got to let you go collect your kids and all that sort of fun
2: stuff. Thank you, mate. Yeah. No, I'd rather stay and chat. <laughs> the kids can walk home. Yeah,
1: well, that's it. Craig, <laughs> it's good gonna... for resilience. It is good for resilience.
2: <laughs> no, no, I'll be respectful of your time. But yeah, if, if there's scope, I'd love to come on again and we can pick up where we left off.
1: Yeah, for sure. One well, of I the... guess one... oh, yep. I was, I was going to say, gonna what, say what, let's you... not forget about the book that came out yesterday.
0: Yeah, we're, we're gonna we're gonna get no. the plugs in. We're gonna get the plugs oh, we'll in. We'll get, get the plugs, the plugs in. in. But one one of the things, funnily enough, uh, that I don't know whether it was I don't think it was your book, but one of the things that I've listened to recently was about um, kids. Some kid in uh, a project that's happening in New York or in America where they let their kids walk home from school, or they let their kids go and and. Get the bus back from
1: somewhere. I can't oh, remember where. I... stolen focus. Stolen uh, the focus. That's what it was from. Talks about how the like the coddling of children um, reduces their ability to have expanded attention. So yeah, it's it's all about the having graduated exposure to you know stress and threat reducing things. Because I'm, I'm he makes the point of like the odds of being kidnapped today versus in the 80s when kids used to walk around the streets is astronomically lower, and it was already pretty low then.
2: It's I mean, it's a fantastic point. And this whole resilience thing, we've started to look past the the who needs this the most. And and the ultimate answer is kids growing up. If you can be putting this into kids' minds and these skills to build resilience, then they're going to grow into more resilient adults. And and indeed, we've been plugged in through Resilience Shield with a, a couple of schools to run some pilot programs, develop programs and I was I was talking to a principal just recently about a, a program at a school, and he used the term bulldozer parent, which I loved. you know we've we've heard of helicopter parent that kind of floats around mm. and 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 extracts their kid out of danger, but but a bulldozer parent just paves the way for their kid, just clears everything out of the kid's road, and the kid can just toddle along this this clear path, and it does not set them up for. For, to be a resilient you, you, adult, you need to have those stressors, and you you need to walk home from school. You need to face adversity, ideally in a in an environment that's safe to fail in. And uh, probably, if it was done in the US, the kids got a nine mil in their pants. <laughs> so they're probably, no, I say that in jest, but but I think that's a, a brilliant. It's brilliant that that's entering the narrative.
1: That's what- why the the playgrounds are so much more interesting now, right? Compared to. It was a period probably mine and Travis's generation nice. where things got really, you know, they removed a lot of things, yeah. you know, one kid broke the run, they got rid of it. And then yeah, all of a sudden yeah. the last 10 years since they've had the evidence that's come out that said it's better for kids to explore and have some level of threat and some level of risk that all of a sudden, you know, I walk down the road and there's like a two and a half story high climbing thing. And, and, you know, it's great. I don't, and it's good because it hasn't been democratic because I, I you know, you feel like society is a bit more bubble wrapped, but, playgrounds the local councils in sydney are doing a great job
2: yeah agreed it is it is heartening to see playgrounds where kids can break arms again and it's uh, yeah uh, i mean that in all seriousness it's and i remember one case study of a one limb fell from a tree in a playground at one point and hurt a kid and so they cut all the trees down in the playground and you're just like oh no we're getting this all wrong you know kid the kid should be up climbing those trees, breaking their arms, falling out of there. That's how we build resilience, yeah.
0: One of the things that I just wanted to sort of finish off on, even though we said if there was one answer to everything, you know, that would be the billion-dollar question or the billion-dollar industry, what are some real things, some takeaways, you know, whatever it be, five, three, one, two, what are some things that people could – action you know i do suggest listen or read the book but what are some things that, that an everyday person could action to help
1: build the, their resilience the bang For buck, is you, you're looking for the yeah. bang for buck answer
2: the the mind layer is where the money's at if you're going to focus on one and a, a, a meditative practice and now this doesn't need to be hours and hours this isn't three hours a day you know sitting on a hill humming burning incense or whatever else this is this is five to ten minutes of, of meditation three to five times a week there's some great studies that show that causes changes to the way your brain fires over as little as two weeks uh and then the long, it's like any training effect the more you do the longer you do it for hmm. you get more adaptation but but there's some great apps out there i use calm i've got no affiliation with that i'm sure they're all equally as good but but the calm app has got a daily calm. It's a guided mm. meditation, 10 minutes a day. I do that most days, you know, generally five to seven days a week. And it's only 10 minutes out of your day. And and this is if I if I engage with people now who are training up for SAS selection, they say, what, what should I be doing? Uh, the first thing I say is start meditating in all seriousness, mm. because you want to start training your brain to be optimized in high stress. So mindfulness meditation is number one. Gratitude is a really interesting construct. And we, we delve into how that works in the book, But but just a simple gratitude practice. We do this in our family around the table at dinner. Just go to the kids. What were you grateful for today? And just get them focusing in on what's good in their life. Uh, The from a social perspective, just having we know that having as 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 little as one close interpersonal relationship really moves the needle on resilience. So investing in your close personal relationships and look at how much time you're spending on things like Facebook, social media, all this sort of stuff. And that doesn't move the needle on resilience. Having 10,000 followers on Facebook doesn't move the needle. Having one person in your life who you have deep, meaningful, if it's appropriate, who you touch and you hug and you kiss, who you can cry in front of, be vulnerable in front of. That's the stuff that builds resilience and the social layers huge. So, I mean, they would be, the, the best bang for your buck, based on our evidence, our empirical proof, is to build your mind layer with, with short, sharp, resilience, mindfulness, meditative interventions done regularly, and build your social layer. And, and then the rest of it, you know, that it, it all does cause resilience uh, in terms of things like looking after your sleep, diet, exercise, all of that sort of body layer stuff, your professional layer. But if you really got to hone in on something, uh, the mind layer and the, the social layer are the, are the big ones.
0: I think, I think a few apps, Waking Up, uh, Headspace, there are a few other ones that are pretty well known. And I don't know whether this was in your book or in any of these other books that I sort of listened to, where they spoke about uh, the meditation, you know, like five minutes of meditation leads to, uh, you know, like a, like uh, the, the time you spend in meditation saves you time later in distraction or something along those lines. I don't know if that was from your book or something different.
2: Yeah. There, I mean, I've seen that in multiples. It is in ours as well. And, and it's, it, there's a great quote that floats around. I'm going to butcher it, but it's something like if, if you haven't got 10 minutes in your day to meditate, you better have an hour type thing. And uh, yeah. It, see, there you go. That, that,
0: that, that was, see, that's me, me like a vaguely half remember the information and throw it to the smarter person to, to recall yeah. more of the information. Oh, I don't know
1: uh, about you, if, you'd, <laughs> if you'd meditated, you might have been able to remember. Like, one <laughs> yeah. one point around this sort of meditation mindfulness, I myself have really struggled when I've tried to meditate in the past, yeah. and yeah. I've found uh, for me to to have like a mindfulness practice, yoga has been great because I'm very ants in my pants, physically active, so I don't I don't handle sitting still very well. Um, you know, would you, you? I guess it gets into a bit of the concept of the whole like flow state type. Yeah concepts that if you can find an activity where you don't notice time passing that that sense of being in the moment um you know you can get that benefit um you know versus strict meditation there's there's a few different options open to people because i know in my experience you know i myself it's a bit like the the doctor telling you not to smoke and then having a few ciggies. i i I often recommend meditation but i struggle to do it myself so I, i find something that you know gives me a bit of the the body benefits as well because i i feel like i get the the i definitely get the the headspace side of things as well do you, do you sort of agree there's a few other ways you can achieve that there's a few other ways to skin that cat
2: absolutely and i look at this if you look at the physical parallels you can you can go to the gym and you can deliberately work one muscle group and and that's a dedicated training that's akin to to a meditative practice you are focused in and, and you're deliberately trying to train that that uh that meditative practice and those those neural networks and then there's everything else like in the physical space there's there's taking the stairs instead of the lift there's you know parking a block away and walking a bit further there's having a casual hit of tennis this sort of stuff that all helps you out physically but it may not be as directed and dedicated and focused as the gym work same with your brain so there's the dedicated meditative practice and then there's all the mindfulness and flow state stuff that does similar things to your to your brain and and you know in effect trains similar sort of pathways and and that is stuff like flow state it's it's all about drawing yourself into the moment and and you could i find the ice bath uh, type practice to be a very mindful experience it's hard to think of anything else when you are in a one degree bath and just trying to you know, concentrate on your breathing. You know, I, I, I often talk to people about, uh, particularly military groups, about things like shooting and, and sniping in particular as being a very mindful activity. You are tuned in, you're focused, you're thinking about windage, elevation, you know, the the, the pressure of your finger on that trigger and that you're controlling your breathing, lowering your heart rate, focusing and, and shooting. You know, drinking whiskey or wine is another great example. If you mindfully drink it, you know, you're focused in on the color on the smell, on the on the you know the taste, the, the foretaste, after it's you've, it's you've just, lost track. Does that does that <laughs>
0: does that include goon?
2: <laughs> no, I don't think uh, the, the, the difference between mindful and, and mindless drinking and proteinlexia does make it, you sexier. Yeah. Well, look, it does. It does. Yeah. I, I agree. But, but uh, yeah, I think once you're cracking out the goon bag, you've probably, you know, deteriorated past mindfulness, but, but yeah, certainly And flow state activities are a great example of, of something else. That's very therapeutic for your brain, mm. It is off a thing called the default mode network or the monkey mind. If you can tap into a flow state, then that's another really cathartic uh, mm-hmm. brain space to be in. So yeah, that's that's all in that mind realm and it's it's all good stuff, absolutely. I,
1: I definitely can't think of anything else when I'm in downward dog, because that's Ooh, meant to yeah. be the rest pose. Ooh. That's the most outrageous thing when I started doing yoga. And they're like, yeah. we're gonna go into a rest pose of downward dog. I was like, are you serious?
2: <laughs> you mentioned- I, Everything is burning. Resistance to interrogation. They love their stress positions in that RTI course. Yeah. And for me, downward dog is a stress position. I'm, I'm with you. That ain't relaxing at all.
0: Well, one of the things that I always, uh, I'm, I saw this at a conference once for trainers is starting your session with something that makes people hyper-focused. Because um, people will come into their sessions. They've got... They want to complain about their day at work, their kids, they're this, they're that, all this sort of stuff. But starting a session with one of the ones that I really liked was they use like a little piece of like dowel and they make someone walk around trying to balance it on their finger. And all you five minutes and it's just all you can focus on is that activity or, you know, like throwing a tennis ball, catch it with your left hand, catch it with the right hand. And it just everything else melts away and you just get to like zero in on this and then you start your session afterwards. And it's just a far more productive way to get things done.
2: A bit a juggling yeah a bit a juggling and that talks to and and most people who've done any martial arts when you sort of start talking about mindfulness meditation. They say, Hey, I used to do karate as a kid. And you know what they used to do five minutes meditation before every session. it's like, Hey, that, that makes sense. And it kind of brings it back, but, but anything that you can snap out of that default mode network or that rumination, you know, that your brain just on autopilot, just churning stuff around. And, and if you can break that cycle with a period of focus, then you can then move into this next phase. And, and we talk about psychological transitions in the book and, and there's a great book, by a doctor by the name of can't remember, but it's called, it's called the third space. And the, the idea is Adam Fraser is the doctor's name. But the idea is that you, the first space is where you're at now. The second space is where you're going. And the third space is the in-between. And so it's about drawing yourself into a, a mindful state. And he uses three R's, the, the rest, reflect and reset is Fraser's technique. And, and this is just, right, Let's let's punctuate the day. And, and it sounds like Travis, what you're talking about is just forcing someone to come into the moment, bring them into yeah. a focus on an activity that switches off the default mode network. So there's not enough cerebral bandwidth to be thinking about all the crap that happened at work or worrying about what's going to happen later. You're like, I've got to focus in on this. And so that just sort of resets your brain and then you move into that next space of what you, your session, in a in a great mindset. So, so those, those, uh, punctuations in your day, those mindful moments are, are fantastic. And that's a great way to achieve it.
1: I often uh, talk with patients when we're dealing with sort of mental health, uh, specific sort of mental health diagnostic sort of stuff. You know, if you spend all your time thinking about the past, you know, regret reflecting that you're going to get horribly depressed, or if you're depressed, that's all you're going to think about. Yep. If yep. you're highly anxious, you spend your whole time worrying about the future. And, you know, the key between those two things is, uh, is somewhere in the middle, focusing on the, the here and now, and that's all you can do. You can focus on today. You can't change the future. You can't change the past. Try and you know, engage some of that mindfulness. So it's so important in, in that resilience and also just that overall um, you know, wellness and, and mental health and well-being. Perfect. Mate, I think what we'll do now, we're
0: going to throw it out to the plugs. We've got your books. Uh, I I do recommend at least the first two that I have gone through, The Average 70 Kilo Dickhead and The Resilience Shield. Um, The last most recent one, is The Combat Doctor, I believe.
2: Yeah, so that that one dropped just yesterday. Yep.
0: There you go. And then... Beyond that, what is there any anything else you, you mentioned? Uh, the Resilience Shield website. Uh, any other any other things that you'd like to throw out there for people to uh, you know follow you on socials or anything like that 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 could be useful.
2: Yeah, look, thanks for the opportunity. Yes, I've got a website, very narcissistically called danpronk.com. So I'm not hard to find there. And and uh, certainly from a, I, I do some blogging there. It, it, you can find me on Instagram. I'm pretty active on Instagram, LinkedIn. But from a Resilient Shield perspective, if you're interested in what we've discussed today, we've got online courses. You can find that through our website, resilientshield.com. And we've also got a retreat coming up on Fitzroy Island off Cairns, uh late October so we're still taking we're almost full but we're still taking depending on when this goes to air and we're still taking people for that so that'll be three days of of just uh, workshoppy type stuff and activities based around the resilient shield models and philosophy and got some great people on board there's ben ben tim and myself we're not the great people but we, we've got great people mark, you're on mark, board <laughs> mark wales who won the last season of australian survivor he's an ex-sas guy he's an author himself sam bloom from penguin bloom fame who, who had that that incident and ended up uh, paraplegic in a wheelchair and and had this really inspirational recovery aided by a, a little baby magpie that that she befriended so she Sam's coming along we've got a, a great bunch of people. Uh, for this retreat so if anyone's interested check out resilientshield.com. you can get more details you won't be
0: putting people in stress positions
2: no 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 absolutely not there'll be none of that it's nothing like a SAS selection course don't fear that it's um, it was a small physical component within the the ability of the individuals but it's it's just based around learning all these principles and being able to build a, a ro- robust and maintainable resilience
0: Love it. Mate, thank you so much for your time. Uh, Really appreciate it. Uh, It's been been a really great chat, Craig.
1: Yeah, great fun. Uh, We'll have to catch up at some point when we're in the same city. And um, I'm sure there's lots more to chat about. Hopefully we'll have you on again uh, sometime soon.
2: Look, I would love that. Yep. Great chat, Travis, Craig. Cheers for your time, gents.
1: Thank you for listening. If you liked this show, share it with your friends, subscribe on iTunes and leave us a five-star review. For show notes and free training on how to grow your fitness business, visit www.fitnesseducationonline.com.au.
2: Are you a fitness professional looking to provide your
0: clients with personalized meal plans?